As if giving half a billion to Ford to build the battery plant wasn't enough, now people are facing possibly losing their homes in the area in order to build more taxpayer-funded roads for the plant. Our state legislature's Commission of Race and Equal Opportunity does the important work of spending our money to hear from corporations about how racist they are. And finally, the Louisville media has entered full spin zone as they worry that JCPS's failures might make people realize that the liberals leading their city are truly awful at their jobs. We'll have all that and more today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. But first, as always, I ask that you guys like, comment, share, subscribe. Uh, if you're listening on Facebook and Twitter, make sure you share it out there. YouTube, make sure you subscribe, sign up for notifications. Same thing on the podcast form. Make sure you subscribe and sign up for notifications. Also want to plug one more thing. Now, some of you are aware of this uh, because I know you emailed me. Some of you are not, but a few of my stories a week, probably about three or four uh, last week have actually came from people emailing me about situations they're aware of that's going on and would like more coverage of it or would like for the state to be aware of what's happening. And so if you want to hear something covered or you have an idea for a story in your area that you think would be interesting, please feel free to reach out to the show. You can email info at theandrewshow.com. That's info at theandrewshow.com. And if you send an email there um, and, and you know, if there's any news articles about it or other uh, tape testimony meetings about it, send links to that too as well. I do sit down and watch those things and read those things, obviously, so that way I can get aware of what's going on. And I appreciate those of you who have been emailing me about some topics and want to encourage others to do the same. But without further Ado, let's dig into it. So I've covered extensively how the Blue Oval battery uh, plant, uh, I've talked about a lot. And, you know, to my longtime followers and even new followers of this show, you may be aware of how I feel about the plant. And I do not like it at all. In fact, I believe it's one of the most egregious actions I've seen out of our state government in recent history. Why? Well, first, uh, the reason why the plant is there and is going in there is because we, the taxpayer, gave Ford uh, at least $410 million to be there. We gave them about $20, $30 million worth of free land that the taxpayer paid off. We also, as well, uh, our funding training programs for them. And then finally, and most egregious of all, we're giving them about $350 million in straight cash in order for the plant to go there. And it was supposedly necessary so we could win the plant. So my first problem here is I don't like the state giving that much, hundreds of millions of our dollars to a private corporation. I feel uncomfortable with it. And the second thing was how it was passed. So for those of you who are unaware, the way this was passed for funding, this was a, you got to pass it to know what's in it kind of vote. So actually, in fact, Senate and House leadership, and uh, of course, some people in the Bashir administration, Bashir knew what the factory was, what they're building, what they're bringing in. The vast, vast majority of our legislators, like almost 100% of them, had no clue what they were actually building. So when the legislators voted yes to giving this half a billion dollars to this company, um, they didn't know actually who they were giving it to and what they were building. They're just told to trust Bashir, trust the legislature and give half a billion to a private company. And they would really, really like it. They promise, which is a horrible way to pass a bill. I don't care what excuses you want to make. Every single legislature should have voted no on that bill. Um, if you're going to spend half a billion in taxpayer dollars, you should maybe know what it goes to. When it, you want to know personally, if somebody came in and said, "Hey, I need, I need, um, 
several thousand dollars from you and I'm going to spend it on something, but I'm not going to tell you what, would you give them that money? Well, that's about proportionally, depending on how much money you make, that's about proportionally what they're asking for. And so, but legislators voted yes on that. I think that was awful. And then also as well, I don't particularly like the project. I don't think electric vehicles necessarily, there's a lot of questions here. We got power grid issues, got mineral issues um, about how are we going to get these minerals? How are we going to plug in these vehicles on the power grid? How do we deal with things? I mean, we're seeing failures of this, you know, obviously in, in places like California and others, where we've seen a lot of issues with these electric vehicles. Those, those questions there haven't been answered. So obviously, I'm, I'm dubious of the long-term viability. I'm dubious of the electric vehicle market as a whole, only because there's a lot of subsidies going into it from the taxpayer uh, at the national and federal level. So what happens when that goes away? And then the other reason why I'm dubious of this project and have an issue with it is because it was said to bring about 10 to 20,000 jobs into an area where we only have 2,000 people currently looking for jobs. I covered this a few weeks ago in a podcast, but in the Hardin County area, uh, there's only about two, 3,000 people looking for a job right now as we speak, and yet we're going to dump 10, 20,000 jobs into the area. There's no easy way to pay for the mass amount of growth that needs to go on because of the deals cut, the tax revenues being brought in, won't be easy. Everything that area there will experience local inflation because you'll have so many jobs chasing after so few people. So labor is going to get so expensive. So everything there is going to go up, of course, in price. And then also as well, if I'm to be honest, my philosophy on government doesn't coincide very well with this idea that we need to, quote unquote, bring jobs to an area. And follow me here. And I know some of you may disagree. And uh, while I was running for state treasurer, I actually brought this up on a podcast I was on. And they kind of stared at me for a second. They're like, I've never heard anybody even phrase it that way. But if we're in an area where we don't have massive, massive amounts of unemployment, Okay. And even then I'm a little dubious, but if we aren't in place where we have massive, massive amounts of unemployment, what business is it of the government's? Why does the government care whether or not employers come into an area? As long as, and, and, and I'm only saying that they should even care a little if there's no jobs, because obviously taxpayers have to fund things right now under our current system. So putting all that to the side under our current system, why should necessarily a local city or county care if they're bringing in more jobs to an area if their unemployment rate is low? What business is it of theirs? Now, a lot of people want to claim, well, they want to pay for more services and they can offer more to the community that way. That doesn't hold water with me. That doesn't make sense because if you can't afford to provide the services uh, to the people that you currently have, then how could you afford to provide services to more people taxing at the same rates? That doesn't make sense. Now, there could be the way we have our taxing structures set up here in uh, this state, this county, this and cities, and the state, our counties and cities, they can't collect a, uh, a sales tax. They can only collect kind of like an income tax, like a um, occupational tax, it's called. And because that's all they can collect, they need jobs in their counties uh, to produce those revenues. If people live outside their county or work outside their counties, but live in there, it can be pretty hard and difficult for them. So that might be a local reason why. But after your initial bills are paid, after you have uh, near 100% employment, what business of it is the government's to, to do this? What business is it of our state government to do this? And especially to Hardin County. Hardin County uh, is pretty sizable county with a fairly low unemployment, as I've covered. They should have more than enough money to operate their, their county governments. And adding in more people and, and more problems isn't going to make it easier on them. 
they can't manage what they have now, how are they going to manage it in the future? And so I do challenge this idea that it's government's job to create jobs. And for those of you conservatives and Republicans who are yelling at me or disagreeing with me, I ask you to read our party platform because our party platform states pretty clearly that we as Republicans are supposed to believe that government doesn't create economic opportunities. Government doesn't create jobs. We only hinder them. That is in our platform. But I digress. So now, in order to accommodate this taxpayer funded plant, we had to build a taxpayer funded road. And of course, uh, the proposed location for this road now may require people to lose their homes. Take a look at this image here. This is the proposed road change in Glendale, Kentucky. In order to accommodate the expected traffic and future traffic flows associated with the battery plant. And if you notice that corridor uh, that they're looking at putting in, that bypass to get around downtown, it requires the possible removal of people's homes. Homes that will have to be acquired, of course, through eminent domain, and then demolished in order to make this bypass. You know, the reason why the government's allowed to do this is, is you know, you'll find this in the Fifth Amendment takings clause of course, uh, the Fifth Amendment takings clause says, this is in our federal constitution, Fifth Amendment, um, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And that's what allows government to supposedly take these homes, demolish them to create roadways in order to, uh, because it's for the greater good, it's for the public. Now, of course, I think our uh, founders are turning around in their grave that somebody would be using that clause in order to build a bigger road leading to a factory that the taxpayers have subsidized, the factory being built into an industry, being heavily subsidized by the federal government. And in that process, they're going to remove homes. But regardless, just because it's wrong doesn't mean it's necessarily illegal and eminent domain happens. But what happens? When it comes to a home, especially one that you built yourself, one of the homes that may be demolished is this one here, the so-called pink house. This is uh, apparently an iconic house in Glendale. Uh, honestly, I haven't been to Glendale, but apparently people from the area say they recognize the house. This house was built by Rita Miller and her husband in 1993. And to hear her tell it, um, they wore down six jigsaws in order to make the fretwork that she designed and made herself. 30 years of memories in a home made with your own two hands. You know, that is something that this current world doesn't seem to really cherish anymore, or it cherishes it until uh, some factory wants to be brought to an area that currently doesn't have a massive unemployment problem to build a product that has been so heavily subsidized by the taxpayers that if taxpayer support is removed, it will probably crumble on a lot. And the only reason why it's being brought to that area is because it's being built on a lot that was bought and paid for by the taxpayer, then given to a multi-billion dollar company Ford and all of this to build an area where everything costs more and yet, when you do actually build something yourself as an individual, something you didn't ask the government to help you build, something you built yourself and you live in, you now in this country have to live every day in fear. 
that's going to be taken away from you by government powers that we have no longer control over. This isn't just homes that you see this issue. You see this issue with businesses. I mean, during COVID, I mean, it's so funny. They love to use eminent domain to get what they want. But during COVID with businesses being shut down, how is that not the confiscation of property for the public use? But yet, was there any just compensation to business owners for the shutdown of their properties? No. There's any just compensation to those unemployed for the seizing of their jobs? No. People want to say, well, what about unemployment? Unemployment's paid for by employers, not by the taxpayers. Not by the government. That is a fund specifically funded by employers. It's a tax we specially have to pay. That's just spending more of our money. I mean, that's all that taxpayers is, but ta or any dollars the government spends. There is no just compensation for that. In fact, what they offered was PPP and EIDL loans. And if you took them, they now use as an excuse as to why they need to forgive student loans as if the government coming in and seizing your business and shutting you down is somehow equal to you deciding to go to college. But that's the world we live in. We live in a world where we are afraid that our government is going at any moment to take from us what we've built with our own two hands. I mean, I'm not saying let's have no progress on issues. What I'm saying is, why does it always cost people like you and me, the Millers, so much? Why does it cost us our homes, our livelihoods, our jobs, our businesses? Meanwhile, those who have paid the proper bribes to the politicians are the ones who prosper pulling out of our pocket. I mean, this isn't capitalism, and this isn't a form of republicanism. This isn't conservatism. This, that was what our country was founded on. This is an all-for-the-greater-good socialism-type BS, and evil men have used it's for the greater good as an excuse over the years to do a whole lot of evil, evil things. Speaking of evil things, the state legislature commission on race met this week. We'll be going over that after this short break. So the state legislators commission on race and access to equal opportunity. Man, that is Orwellian. Heard a presentation for the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce on how racist they all are and what kind of racism do they have in place to fix their racism. This under the guise, of course, of DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what do I mean by the chamber presenting about how racist they are? Well, the Chamber of Commerce is supposed to represent businesses and corporations in Kentucky. It's actually one of the more powerful and larger lobbying groups we see in Frankfurt. And it's funny, uh, you know, a lot of us joke and call them the Kentucky Chamber of Communism. You'll see why we joke about that here as we dig into it. But the chamber, for some reason... Um, says, hey, look, businesses in Kentucky, because, of course, that's what they deal with, uh, you know, they're racist. They don't have enough minorities, women, LGBTQ people. They're bigots, racist, awful people. And those businesses need to do something about it, and you, the government, need to do something about it as well, which is so odd they would be making this presentation to the government and talking to the government about it because, of course, they are funded by the said racist businesses. If they really want to make a change, they would not involve the legislature, and they certainly would have lobbied for the creation of this commission 
which is what, by the way, they heavily push for the creation of this. No, if they were actually concerned about this, they would then turn to their members and say, hey, stop being racist. But see, the problem is that doesn't take money out of, of course, our pockets to fund one of their boondoggle power grabs they have going on. But first, what is DEI? Basically, DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this is basically the idea that our systems, and of course, therefore ourselves, are all racist people who hate women. We create spaces where LGBTQ people can't succeed. So in order to fix that, we must uh, treat everybody differently based on their skin color, gender, or sexual identity, which almost sounds exactly like the definition of being a bigot. Hmm. Anyway, so in this guise of being super fair and it's, you know, diversity and equity, everything's need to be equitable, not the outcomes don't need to be equal, but, uh, or sorry, not the opportunities need to be equal, but the, the outcomes must be equal. That's what equity means. So in this guise of DEI and whatever, a few liberal Republicans convinced the majority of their principal list colleagues to vote for something that sounds like the exact opposite of conservatism and is truly Orwellian sounding in name. So this statutory committee is called uh, the Commission on Race and Access to Equal Opportunity. Now, Based upon that name, you would think this committee is supposed to hunt down racists within the government. They're denying the same government services to everyone simply because of people's skin color or gender. Right? That's what you'd think. Access to equal opportunity. It's coming from the government. Well, the government then would just be there to make sure that everybody has equal access, regardless of their skin color or gender, to government services. But that isn't actually what they do. No, quite the opposite. They actually encourage treating people differently based on their skin color. They actually encourage government services, government funded, taxpayer funded opportunities to be targeted to people based on their skin color and gender and for people to not have access to actual equal opportunity in order to create or attempt to create an equal outcome. Now this week, they heard from the Kentucky Chamber who gave a presentation on how racist they are. Because um, once again, I mean, they are businesses themselves. So why don't they just talk to their businesses? So why would they be telling the government about how racist all their members are instead of telling their members to stop being racist? Well, it's probably because they can funnel more of our money into their own pockets using this guise of diversity, equity, inclusion. I mean, long ago, the chamber left behind any kind of pretending that they exist solely to represent business issues. Now they've turned capitalism into activism. This is something these so-called capitalist companies do. They're not capitalists anymore. They're cronious. What they do is they convince government to give them money or they use these things as marketing opportunities in order to hide what they're really doing. You've seen immense amount of examples over this, over the past several years as wokeism in our companies have become so rampant. You know, we have, we have companies like Apple talking about how much uh, diversity they have while meanwhile, their manufacturing facilities over in China are so poorly run that people are committing suicide. They're like a magician distract you here. While I'm really doing this over here. 
distract you with this bright, shiny object. In fact, they've co-opted the left, which previously has always been against the corporations to the point where now they support the corporations. They support giving them money. They support the party line when it comes to the corporations instead of standing against them. And so in this, the chamber is admitted. They no longer just deal with businesses. In fact, it's almost an afterthought. Business is an afterthought to them when it comes to what exactly their point is. Let me give you an example here. Let me play for you the beginning of their testimony in front of the legislature or in front of this committee. From the chamber's perspective, that we wanted to kind of stay within our scope. We knew that we needed to take a bite of this apple. We couldn't eat the whole apple at a time. And so our report really focused on the three issues that our group said this is the chamber's sphere. This is where you guys have influence. And that was uh, education, criminal justice reform, and economic opportunity. And that's. Huh. That's interesting. Only one of those three really has to do with business at all, economic opportunity. And that was the president of the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce talking about where they have influence. And what was the first list? Education. What was the next list? Criminal justice reform. And then finally, something to do with businesses. Because, of course, this is just a guise to funnel more influence to themselves. They don't want to be just involved in business. They want to be involved in all aspects of our lives. And why do we continue to push this DEI stuff? Well, I have a little bit of a conspiracy theory to a degree. You may call that that. But I'd spoken about this this entire committee's Orwellian. And there's this Orwellian concept, if you read 1984, about razor blades. Throughout the book, or I don't I've never actually seen the movie, so I don't know if this goes on in the movie. But throughout the book, there's always this shortage of razor blades. And later on, it is explained why. And the reason why is because they have these wars constantly going on. And nothing is accomplished on these wars. They admit that they move, the front lines move, you know, a few miles this way, a few miles that way. But nothing's to be accomplished. And the reason why they do this and expend resources on something that doesn't actually accomplish anything is because it sucks those resources out of the economy. And if we weren't spending our tax dollars on these wars, well, we wouldn't have to tax so much. People would be able to take care of themselves. And sometimes, not sometimes, I feel all the time that our government almost seeks places to waste our money on so they can claim they need more. So in turn, we have more problems that they need to solve. I don't know if they do this on purpose or if it's just simply a conglomerate of factors and motivations such as wanting more power, more control, wanting to feel important. And so in this, this quest for this phantom racism that seems to be going on in our system, we need to spend not more of our money. And, and you know, if the chamber was just advocating for all these companies to spend more of companies' money or their own money, and it didn't have to deal with us, the taxpayer, we weren't forced into it, I wouldn't have any problem with it. I disagree with it personally. And maybe I wouldn't do business with businesses that say that. But if they want to spend their money to indoctrinate idiots, I'd be fine with it. But they're not just spending their money. Listen to her talk here. She's going to talk about a seminar that they put on. Listen to what she says about the seminar. And then let's talk about the companies that she shows that attended. 
We hosted our first DEI Academy, which was a three-day educational and interactive experiences for business executives, HR leaders, and DEI professionals to raise awareness and provide actionable steps to embed DEI in their respective organizations and business. To embed DEI in their respective organizations and businesses. Let me throw up that slide she put up, who their participants were. Now, there's several private companies, uh, Bellarmine, a private university. But first, I'm going to point at the Art Center of the Bluegrass. When you go on the Art Center of the, of the Bluegrass's webpage, what you'll find is they'll say, thanks to our major partners. And who's their major partners? Toyota, private company, do what you want. The National Endowment for the Arts, that's a federal government entity, so our tax dollars. Danville, Kentucky. The city of Danville, that is obviously the city of Danville's tax dollars. And the Kentucky Arts Council, that is funded by our taxpayer funds, and then they turn around and give money to this uh, um, organization, to this art center of the bluegrass. And they attended, spending our tax dollars to attend uh, DE&I Academy to embed these concepts into their organization, our tax dollars. But they're not the only organization that went there uh, that, that was funded by taxpayers. No. Who else do we see being funded by taxpayers that went? Well, we see the Kentucky Association of Economic Development. Who sponsors that? Who, who's, who's the major sponsors of Kentucky uh, uh, Association of Economic Development? Murray State University. That's a public university. Taxpayer funds go to that. Team Kentucky, Cabinet for Economic Development. So that is the entire government cabinet. That is obviously government. The Kentucky, <laughs> the Kentucky Agricultural Development Fund, clearly. Louisville Water <laughs> gives them money. On top of that, we have um, Kentucky Proud, the Department of Agriculture. KCTC, that's obviously public university receiving taxpayer funds. So clearly organization receiving taxpayer dollars. The Kentucky Housing Corporation, that is a pseudo-government organization. They attended this DE&I Academy. So it's not just their dollars they're spending on this. These are taxpayer funds. So they're embedding, that's their words, these DEI ideas in groups that spend our tax dollars, all of this in a quest to solve a massive amount of racism. We have in apparently ample supply. We need to be spending all this money on it in Kentucky. However, one of their so-called accomplishments really challenges the idea that Kentucky is racist at all. Listen to what she proclaims as a accomplishment that they've, that they've done here over the last year. 
So when we started this work several years ago, I would get calls from businesses, from universities and others across the state on a weekly basis saying, we're doing an RFP. We want to put this out uh, for, for minority businesses. Isn't there a website? Isn't there a website I can just go to and see you know, what vendors are minority owned? And much to my naivete, I thought that there probably was. So I started calling the Cabinet for Economic Development. I called the Secretary of State's office. I called local chambers of commerce would have it for their area. But there was no statewide database of where anyone that is minority certified business owned could go and put their information on a database. Nowhere to go. To find a list of minority owned businesses. Now, creating a central database of minority owned businesses and making sure they're certified as well in order to be on there that we know for a fact you have the light skin pigment to be on the list. Would that be something you would do in a world that's racist against minorities? I mean, the very fact that you claim this is a giant accomplishment, wouldn't it fly in the face that Kentucky is hugely racist against minorities? I mean, at no point through this entire presentation does anyone ask a question that you would ask if your state was just full of white racist people, which is, well, would it be creating a directory of minority-owned businesses actually hurt them because all the white racist people would now know who owns companies and would decide not to do business with them? Would that, was that question ever asked? No, why? Because it's a dumb question. Because those people really don't exist and they know they don't exist. And it makes you wonder, what are they even doing here? If we have such a unracist business environment in Kentucky that creating and putting yourself on a list of minority businesses leads to you getting more business or at least a reverse racism of sorts there. But anyways, it leads to minority businesses getting more business. It's something they'd want to do. Then obviously our, our business world isn't that racist after all against minorities. I mean, creating special processes and programs for minorities only. I mean, what are, what are we doing? I mean, let me ask you this, okay? They, they want to talk about race. These are special things for minority-owned businesses so they can get off the ground because they really need the help. Let me ask you this question. Who do you think has a better opportunity of succeeding in the business world? Okay, you ready? A minority individual whose family, so let's say a, 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 a black woman is starting a salon and she has parents um, that were very wealthy and they are able to give her the money to start up the salon or rather uh, uh, she is the daughter of parents who own multiple salons already and she decides she wants to start her own salon or a white woman who comes from poor Appalachia, let's say, or just poor anywhere, it doesn't matter, comes from poor anywhere, and she wants to start a salon. Nobody in her family has ever owned a business, or poor man, a white man, it doesn't matter. Nobody in their family has ever owned a business. Uh, they don't come from a wealthy family at all. Um, they don't have anything like that. Now, in this scenario, who would be more likely to succeed? The black woman or the white man? Well, obviously, 
the black woman would. There's more know-how there, which indicates that this isn't about racism at all. This has nothing to do with skin color and offering programs based solely on skin color makes zero sense. It makes more sense to offer programs based upon socioeconomical status if you're that worried about, quote unquote, equal opportunity to make sure that everybody has equal access to funding because this person would get money from their parents. So one would argue that that is anti-American because after all, the American dream is to create and build something yourself and then hand it off to your kids. But regardless... Who do you think would need more help to grow? So skin color has nothing to do with whether or not you'll succeed. Your skin pigment has nothing to do with that. Unless, of course, they just believe that minorities in no way can compete with white people in equal business. That seems a little racist to claim. I don't think a minority-owned electric company or a white-owned electric company is, is that doesn't even cross my mind. As far as who can do it, I don't care about their skin color when it comes to who can do a better job. I care about who can do a better job. But did this issue come up? Did any of the Republicans, this is a Republican legislature that passed this bill. This is a Republican committee chaired by Republicans. These are obvious questions I'm asking. How is the state still racist if we're creating a directory of minority-owned businesses and it's helping them? So anybody ask that question? No. In fact, so-called Republican David Givens, his first, as he calls it, quote-unquote, political question was this right here. We typically don't enjoy political questions, but I'm going to throw one on to the two of you. Coming out of COVID, lots of conversations I've had with, with colleagues uh, in my business and industry, which is agriculture, along with other, other business and industry groups, Something changed in COVID. The mindset of people as it relates to work and going to work and the role of work in their lives. Speak to that. Are you sensing any of that in the work the chamber does, in the work that you do about people maybe having a little different life plan as a result of COVID? Wow, Senator Givens. What an amazingly political. I mean, what kind of softball question is that? What kind of, how is that a political question? How do you. I, I, I just don't understand how these people don't ask hard questions to these people. Like, what the heck are we actually doing here? If a minority-owned business listing is a positive, because we're at a point in Kentucky where businesses want, prefer to do business with minorities, the racism problem must be solved, right? Or, well, it kind of went the other way then. Maybe we need to ask about that. But no, the Republicans didn't ask any hard questions in, at all. In fact, the co-chair of the House and so-called Republican Killian Timoney, he said, makes a statement that really shows us how he earned the very unique distinction of being the lowest rated Republican as far as conservatism goes in the General Assembly. He is actually rated less conservative than some of the Democrats. And based upon what he says here, you don't exactly have to question why. And keep in mind, those ratings are based upon just how he votes publicly, let alone what he says behind closed doors. And you can tell how he really thinks when you listen to his comment here. And uh, I think that you all did a really, really good job there. And if we're going to wage a war on a 0% income tax rate, this, is, this has a seat at the table, clearly, without question. 
And uh, I really appreciate that today. You really kind of gave me some talking points to be able to discuss that going forward. Um, you know, oh, DE&I, that's a, it's socialism. And, and I get frustrated um, because it's like, no, there's, there's value here. And I, and I wanted to have more articulate points for them to help understand from my perspective. And you all provided those today. So I appreciate both groups today on that. Thank you, Chairman. What? <laughs> I, I didn't, I, I know like I'm cutting out chunks here where I'm grabbing things, but what he's, he didn't, there wasn't like a conversation beforehand. He is talking, uh, what he is saying is that DEI clearly has a seat at the table if we want to get a, to a 0% income tax. So he says, clearly, 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 <laughs> clearly, if we want to get to a 0% income tax, well, we got to make sure we put in place racist policies that treat other people based on their skin color differently. I mean, clearly DEI is how we get there, right? I mean, if businesses have too many white people, men, and not enough gays hired, Clearly, we can't have a 0% income. I mean, that doesn't make sense. And not only that, it's so incredibly anti-conservative. It's about equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. And that's what DEI is. This, this commission on race was supposedly uh, uh, supposed to be about equal opportunity, but they're talking about outcomes because that's what they're measuring. All throughout this entire meeting, they're talking about the outcomes of their projects, not about the opportunities people are being offered. But of course, seeing Republicans like this is exactly what happens in a uniparty state. In fact, the Daily Wire did an article about this. And it was all about how these Republican supermajority uh, state legislatures are actually have, are more liberal, have more liberal Republicans than uh, slim majorities do. Because what happens is you people like Timoney, who is clearly not a conservative. He is very, he's very socially liberal. I mean, being a Republican means you've conservative fiscal policy. That means you want to spend less. It also means you have a conservative social view. It means that you believe in the two-parent household, the nuclear family. This is all on our platform, by the way. You believe in the nuclear family and how important that is to society and culture. You believe in Judeo-Christian values, generally speaking. You believe in the Constitution. This is the exact opposite of what Killian Timoney believes. Based on his own votes, he believes the government needs to spend more money. I mean, clearly, we need to spend more money on DEI, clearly. But on top of that, every time he's been put in front of him a conservative spending option, he's voted no. He's voted to keep spending more money. And social conservatism, I, I don't even know if he knows how to define that. But this is what happened. People like Timoney, they throw R next to their names because he knows... Nobody would vote for him if he's Democrat or rather people come in in our state and they vote straight ticket. They look at the top of the ticket and they vote straight ticket all the way down. And so nobody's paying attention. Well, now we are, or you are because you're listening to this podcast and you know that this, this, this person is not concerned just because they went down the secretary of state's office or went online and changed their registration doesn't mean they're a Republican. And honestly, I, I mean, how does this, committee even exists in a Republican state really speaks to what's going on. Well, coming up, the Louisville media has gone full spin zone on the JCPS busing issues as they try uh, to blame everything but the schools. We'll have more on that right after this short break. Now, the JCPS busing issue is 
pretty simple to understand. I know I've done a lot of podcasts uh, on this, but um, you know, it, I think we zoom out. It's pretty easy to see what has happened. I mean, people want to complicate it with this and that, this and that, and, th and this is just what it is. They hired a new routing company. Then they didn't practice the routes the company gave them. So the bus drivers got lost and they're going slow. And they realized they didn't realize that the routes were unworkable, that the kids wouldn't get to school on time until the day that they actually did them because they didn't practice it. It's pretty simple. It's straightforward. The failure is obvious. You didn't practice your new bus routes. You're idiots. That's all there is really to say about it. Obviously, you know, I dug into some of the decision making to point out how silly they are, but that's, you know, long story short, they didn't practice the routes. A lot of other reasons complicated into the routes sucked, but they just didn't practice them. So they didn't see the issue coming. So they had to shut down schools to readdress. It's not hard. However, that hasn't stopped the media from trying to blame literally everyone else. And here's an example. This is from WDRB. JCPS officials say one bus delayed caused by parent arguing with driver about bus stop location. Now, how long was the slowdown? 20 minutes. I mean, hardly a news story at all. But yet, we get a headline about it. Why? Because you're able to blame somebody other than JCPS for a bus delay. Well, a parent argued with the bus driver too long. Like I said, hardly a headline, but yet that is what they're now claiming makes for news. Unless you think I'm making too much out of one headline, just go over to the Courier Journal opinion page. Now, the Courier Journal, of course, the opinion page, op-eds are wrote by uh, several different people. They do have some people on staff-ish or contributors that often write op-eds, but they do get to choose what op-eds they want to publish or not publish. Let me give you some of their headlines from the op-eds they have chosen to publish. Greenberg must leverage community resources for solutions to JCPS transportation disaster. Letters. Anger at JCPS is justified yet misplaced. We must work together as a community. The Kentucky legislature must take responsibility for their part in JCPS bus debacle. Don't just point fingers at JCPS. Acknowledge they're working from a disadvantage and help. Then finally, this piece, this, this article here, just absolute piece of resistance from Joe Girth titled, Want to fix JCPS bus woes? Stop transporting rich kids to their schools of choice. Clearly, from the articles they're choosing to publish, they are choosing to publish articles that point the fingers at anybody but JCPS. I mean, just take a look in Joe Girth, who is one of the regular opinion articles, and he's known for writing some pretty ridiculous articles, but take a look at some of the things he said in this article. Here's an example. But what if some of that blame extended to you, the parents, who've decided that Precious needs to be educated at a school clear across town because of the number of national merit semifinalists who've graduated from there, but would, in, would throw an absolute fit if the school board told you that you bear a responsibility to get junior to class on time. Maybe the school assignment plan is broken because the school district feels the need to transport everyone who lives more than a mile away from the school from their homes to the front door of their school and then back again. Get ready for the free ride to end. This current system is just not sustainable. 
course, in this article, Joe admits that it's been this way for 50 plus years. Never once does he explain how somehow now it's the parents' fault, even though this busing scheme's been going on for some near 50 years. Instead, he just claims these parents are taking advantage of a system that's existed for decades. He really has some pretty typical Democrat talking points, doesn't he? When the thing fails that you've elected Democrats to take care of, they tell you just to lower your expectations. Because they suck. What do you expect from people who suck but sucky everything? I mean, this article drips with sheer disdain for parents and their kids. How dare you ask the school systems to put your children first? I mean, what is their point after all but to put themselves first and make things easy for themselves? I mean, that's what he's saying. I mean, he literally put quotations around Precious and Junior. Get ready for the free ride to end. I mean, and he literally advocates for using TARC instead to transport kids because, you know, if you want to see a busing fiasco, throw a bunch of kids in the morning onto TARC, that, that certainly solves a lot of problems. I mean, any points to saying, well, the private school kids do it. Yeah, they do. They've chosen to do it. But if you're going to send your kid to a public school who demands public funds, they need to provide the transportation. Period. That is one of their mandates. I mean, the claim as to why they need 19 grand while private schools need 12 grand, one of their biggest claims is the fact that they have the cost of transportation. And honestly, the Gallagher to call this a free ride. Free ride to who? JCPS has raised their taxes massively over the past several years. Their spending has only gone up and up and up. They have billions of dollars they spend every year. Two billion. Funding from the state has only gone up. It's our tax dollars funding it. Free ride. We're paying for it. Technically, I'm even paying for it. And I live in Lexington. But the people of Jefferson County are paying for it. It's not a free ride. But that's just typical Democrat. Typical people like Kurt. Just think money falls from the sky magically. Like these people aren't paying for it. We've got a government that hates us, that spends our money on all kinds of things that we disagree with. And then when we ask them to do the basic things that we've always expected them to do, the basic things we all agree is probably pretty basic government functions. When they fail at it, they tell us to suck it up, buttercup. Get used to it. We got to spend your money on DEI conferences. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Thank you all so, so much for joining me. Great rest of your day. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 1 o'clock. We'll see you soon.